Howdy, folks, and welcome to the very first episode of the very first season of the Source Code Podcast. My name is Chris Sanders, and I'm super excited to be speaking to you today, and I hope you like what you're going to hear. I want to get on to our first guest here in just a minute, but before we do that, I want to tell you a little bit about the Source Code Podcast since this is the very first episode. Now, one thing I've always loved about the computer security field is that it's so diverse. It's not like some fields where everyone goes on the, along the same path through college or has the same training. Everyone in security has a different story and comes from a unique background. I'm a huge fan of that. I love that about all the people I deal with daily, and I think it should really be celebrated. So that's what I'm really trying to do with this podcast. That's really my ultimate goal. Now, for each episode, I'm going to interview someone from the InfoSec field. It might be a bigger name you've heard of, one of those InfoSec rock stars out there, or it might be someone you've never heard of that maybe you should, someone up and coming or just someone with a really interesting background and career progression story. You can think of this kind of like a superhero's origin story. I'm going to ask questions about life growing up for our guests, how they got into computers, how they sought out education, and ultimately how they got where they are now, and maybe even talk a little bit about what's next and how they view the security field overall, particularly with a focus on education. We're going to talk about their successes, of course. We're also going to talk about their failures and times where things maybe weren't so easy for them. My ultimate hope is down the road, we wind up with a whole bunch of these really great stories, these origin stories that we can share with other people who are newer in the field. With these stories, we can show people that every path is different and give them an opportunity to experience how others succeeded. The number one question I get asked by people is, how do I get started in security? Hopefully this podcast will provide a lot of different paths and options for people who want to ask that question, whether they're fresh out of college or looking to make a career switch later in life. Now, one more thing. I mentioned that this is the first episode of the first season. This podcast is seasonal, just like a TV show might be. I'll be releasing a new one uh, probably about every other week, uh, and this first season will be eight episodes long. After that, we'll take a little break and come back later in the year with another batch of episodes. So you can probably expect two, maybe three, or the start of a third season uh, every year. Uh, and I'll keep doing it as long as I can keep talking people into uh, spending 45 minutes to an hour with me. Now, we've got a lot of great guests lined up for the first season. I'm not going to give them all away right now, but I'll tell you, uh, you're going to hear from folks like Mike Poor, the legendary Packet Ninja Mike Poor. You're going to hear from Bill Pollock, the uh, the president and founder of No Starch Press. Uh, you're going to hear from Jason Smith, a very good friend of mine who has a really cool background story growing up in Kentucky, similarly to me. So you're going to hear from a lot of really interesting folks with a lot of neat stories and a lot of cool stuff to say. Like I said, I'm not going to give them all away now. You'll see those as they come out. But that said, I do want to go ahead and get to our very first guest, and this is someone I'm very excited to have on. Uh, it's Mr. Ed Scotus. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with Ed. Uh, obviously, he's a SANS instructor and teaches a lot of the offensive security SANS courses. Uh, I know Ed. He actually founded a company I worked for, uh, a company called InGuardians. I uh, was a founding member of that uh, before he moved on to a company called CounterHack, uh, which is, I think, one of the most exciting companies in information security. They're doing a lot of really neat things that definitely fall within my interest. So I'll let him tell you about that. Uh, so without much further ado, let's go ahead and, uh, and bring Ed in here. Ed Scotus, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, Chris. How are you? Oh, I couldn't be better. Well, thanks uh, thanks a lot for spending time with us here today. Uh, and I guess to start out, just to level set, I think most people who are listening probably know you, but for those who don't, tell us a little bit about CounterHack and, and what that's all about and what you're doing there. Sure. So I founded a company called CounterHack. Uh, and our goal is to make world-class 
uh, simulations to help people learn information security. And CounterHack is essentially uh, a research and development arm of the SANS Institute. And uh, at CounterHack, we create things like NetWars, um, which is you could consider it a, a simulation of, uh, of different kinds of environments where you have to go in and do analysis. Uh, you could call it capture the flag if you want. Um, but, you know, offensive kinds of work like uh, penetration testing, uh, analytic kind of work like packet analysis, malware analysis, uh, digital forensics, cyber defense, all of those things fold together in NetWars. Uh, my team also does a project called CyberCity where we have extended NetWars into the kinetic space. We have a six foot by eight foot city and on the top of the table um, there's uh, little buildings and a train and, and a water reservoir. Underneath the table are the industrial control systems that control everything above the table. And the city comes under siege by terrorists, and they try to do all these kinds of horrible things. And people who participate in CyberCity have to stop the cyber attacks that the terrorists are doing. Um, we also do something called the Holiday Hack Challenge that we give away to the whole world. Um, every year, we, do it, uh, we release it the first week of December. We actually work on it for a whole year. Um, we had in our most recent Holiday Hack Challenge uh, over 9,700 people participate around the world. Wow. And, uh, yeah, they have to save uh, Christmas every year because it comes under assault. So those are a lot of fun things. So that's what my team and I do. I'm also uh, very thankful to be an instructor for the SANS Institute. Uh, I teach courses on penetration testing, um, and uh, I do that about once a month. I love doing that. I'm also the curriculum lead for all of the pen test curriculum at SANS. Uh, that means it's my job to ensure that we have uh, courses that teach people what they need to know to do their job, that we have the best instructors in the world, um, that the, um, the learning environment uh, fosters uh, skill transfer. Um, so I, I'm very honored to be able to work with the SANS Institute um, and, and then to have CounterHack work with SANS in that way. So that's kind of who I am and where I come from. Awesome. Well, yeah, and I guess for the folks listening, you and I actually met through through SANS. I actually took your course, um, SANS uh, Security 504. I guess this was probably, gosh, it seems like it's maybe been six or seven years ago in San Diego. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, wonderful course. Uh, of course, we, we met there and then you know met again later through uh, mutual friends via and guardians and things of that nature. And, and I'm a big fan of the work. I mean, I think I'm a learning and education guy. I mean, that's part of the reason this podcast exists. And and. I'm always excited to see people who are experimenting with new ways to help people learn. And, you know, the, I think the best kind of learning is when you don't know you're learning, you're just having fun and the learning kind of comes passively almost as a part of that. And I think especially through, you know, the SANS holiday hack challenge, which is free and anybody can do it. Um, you know, the network stuff, uh, cyber city, that's all, that's the stuff that's just really cool and really unique, innovative way. So I'm a huge fan of all that work. Oh, thanks Chris. I appreciate it. And I, I do love thinking about different ways that we can give experiences to people where they, they learn while having fun and learn in a very meaningful way, a hands-on skills that they can directly apply. That's, that's the bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about how you got to, to where you're at now and, and maybe some, some formative year stuff. I mean, I know you're based on the East Coast now, but, but where, where do you call home originally? Where did you grow up at? Sure. I was uh, born and raised in uh, the Detroit area, Detroit, Michigan. Uh, I was, uh, and I lived there uh, up until I was 21. So I, I went to grade school there, went to high school there. I went to um, college at the, uh, the University of Michigan, so over in Ann Arbor. 
Um, and then uh, I left there and went to uh, to graduate school at Carnegie Mellon. That's in uh, Pittsburgh. And then finally, I found myself in New Jersey, where I live to this day. Yeah. Wonderful. So, so what for for a guy like me? So I'm I'm from the South. Spent my whole life in the South. I've been to Michigan, but I know very little of it because I mean I, I'm going and I'm consulting and I'm doing training and I'm in conference rooms and they all look the same everywhere. So, yep. what's life like growing up for young Ed Scotus in Michigan? So, um. Everybody that I knew had a dad that worked in the auto industry. Um, I lived in a very blue-collar neighborhood. My dad worked very hard um, as a tool and die maker. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he, he was a skilled trade, but uh, blue-collar. Uh, and I, I saw his work ethic. We had fun as kids. We would always go on adventures. I lived across the street from this very large wooded area that had a whole bunch of ponds in it. And we would we would craft boats to sail around on these ponds. And, you know, we'd kind of fall in the, the water sometimes and mom would get really mad. Um, it would also get very cold in the winter. So sometimes we would fall through the ice and <laughs> that's always not, not good at all. Um, there was a, a river right by this, uh, this wooded area called Clinton river. Um, and, uh, you know, you can't fall through the ice on the river and like live long if, because you'll, you'll drown. So we were always very careful and very nervous around the Clinton river when it was frozen. Uh, that said, we sometimes would walk across it. Um, trees would fall down over the Clinton river and we'd crawl across those trees to get to the other side of the river and, and we built forts oh my gosh the forts we built tree forts uh on the ground forts underground forts i tell you every single one of our underground forts flooded um <laughs> just the way it was we try to build them on top of a hill because i look it's on a hill so the water is going to go down it won't flood the fort even the forts we built on top of hills would still flood um wow. but Gosh, we had fun, and and we'd build contraptions. We we'd build go karts. We we were builders and adventurers, and had so much fun. And it was me and just this group of ten or fifteen kids that just loved doing that. And, you know, and our dads would all go to work. You know, carrying a lunch bucket and all that, and and we would just kind of build and have fun. It was very. Um, it was almost an idyllic kind of thing. It was very middle class. All our houses looked exactly the same. Um, but gosh, would we just have fun? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, that's for a parent, that's probably some of the best kind of fun because it's, it's imagination based fun and creativity and exploration based fun. So that probably means it's, it's to some degree cheap and affordable fun, which probably helps. Oh yeah. We would scavenge for wood. Um, you know, we would occasionally buy nails. One of the things that Michigan used to have, I, I think they might still have it is a 10 cent, uh, deposit on um, soda bottles, or as we called it in Michigan, pop, right? Pop bottles. So 10 cents. So what we would do is we'd go to this picnic area and find discarded soda bottles and bring them in and change them in for, for 10 cents. And back at the time, you could get a candy bar for 25 cents. So if you found three soda bottles, you got yourself one candy bar and a nickel to spare. Yeah, that's a deal. Uh, and, and the soda itself was 60 cents. So if you got yourself six soda bottles empty, discarded at the picnic area you you got yourself another soda and i'm telling you you found 10 of these suckers find 10 of them you got yourself a soda and a candy bar and we used to do that and then sometimes we'd have excess and we'd use that to buy nails to hammer together the wood to create a fort or to create you know our next go-kart these go-karts were jalopies they were a mess the pieces would fall apart they barely roll but we just loved making them it sounds like between the go-karts and the adventures on the frozen river we're kind of lucky you're even here at all 
Uh, there were times when I, I did very dumb things. One time I was building a tree fort and I had a very big saw and I was cutting <laughs> this one board and uh, I didn't realize that it was kind of holding me up. <laughs> and uh, I, I was an idiot. I really was. And I cut the board and, and, and snap, I fell uh, to the ground and this was maybe 15 feet fall we had tree forts that were up 30 40 feet in the sky this was only 15 feet so it was a re- relatively small fall but i had the saw in my hand as i fell and hit the ground and i and i'm laying there on the ground looking up and i've got in my right hand the saw blade that is laying beside my head if it had turned 90 degrees it would have cut m- my neck and uh, and it's like you know you just look at that and you're like i was a dumb kid i'm like wow that turned out okay, and I crawled right back up into the tree. I must be invincible. <laughs> oh my gosh! That's but awesome. yeah, it was. I, we another thing we used to do. Do you know those Estes model rockets? Yes, yes, yes. Well, we we shot off some of those model rockets. We did that in like third and fourth grade. By the time we got to fifth or sixth grade, we would buy the rocket engines, peel off the cardboard part, take the little rocket motor stuff crunch it up, put it inside of uh, gasoline, and light it on fire. Uh, <laughs> boom! You get explosions. I remember our first mushroom cloud. That was a proud moment. Because um, you have to save up again from these little dime uh, uh, returns on the, the, the bottles that we'd get. You'd have to save up and you buy these rocket engines. I remember one time, it was me and a friend of mine, Steve Slazikowski. Wait till you hear this story. We must have been in fourth or fifth grade. We bought a whole bunch of rocket engines, crunch them up, put them in a, a, a plastic container, put some gasoline in there, and we had a fuse. So we lit the fuse, and pss, the fuse is going up, and then it gets down, and then nothing. Now we're, of course, you know, we're 15, 20 feet away from this thing, and the fuse just, it just fizzled out. So Steven Slazikowski, my buddy and I, we get close to this thing, and we're like looking at it, and you know, we're maybe four or five feet away, we're afraid it's going to like go into this fireball. And Steve says, I think it's still kind of lit. So we get a little bit closer. And I'm like leaning away from it, right, you know, in my, my shorts and stuff because it's the summer. And Steven starts blowing on it. Because, you know, it's and there's still like a little bit of, of fire in there. Suddenly, boom, there's this huge fireball. It burned the skin on my butt. Um, I could, I mean, it was like a, it was like a really bad sunburn on my butt, but the most important thing is what happened to Steven. After this thing exploded, I turned and I looked at Steven and one of his eyebrows was white. And I said, (laughs) Oh my gosh, your eyebrow. And he, he put his hand up and he wiped the eyebrow and it came off. Wow. So he was missing eyebrow. He went home and his mom said to him, what happened to your eyebrow? And Steven's response was, I don't know. So she <laughs> grounded him. She grounded him for losing an eyebrow. Um, it was. <laughs> can you wow. imagine? It comes home without an eyebrow. You ask him what happened. He's like, I don't know. <laughs> Just stuff happens. I lost an eyebrow. Well, I mean, it sounds like it's fortunate that that's all he lost. I thought the story might end with that was the last we ever saw of Steven. Yeah, really. <laughs> we we were we were dumb. Uh, I I shudder to think of my own kids doing things as stupid as what we did. But the point is, we learned, we did have fun, we loved building things, and these stories, I mean, they're 100% true. I remember another thing we used to do, I told you we built those boats. <laughs> you know, this was Michigan, and this was the 1970s, and there was a lot of toxic waste. And what we found were these uh, drums of something, and, uh, you know, hey, you poke a hole in the side of the drum, and you let the liquid out, and then you take the drum, 
and you seal up the hole now because there's just air in it. You get four of these things. You put a board on top. You wrap the whole thing in a net. And now you got a boat. So we sailed around on boats made of drums that held toxic waste. And I, I think back, oh, my gosh, what were we doing? Wow. Um, but, you know, when you're 8 or 10 or 12, you don't even think of these things. It's yeah, just that's amazing. Well, yeah. So, so tell me what it was like. So, I mean, it sounds like a lot of your education kind of came, you know, just through your exploration. But what was what was school like? I mean, were you were you a good student? Were you even into school at all? What was that like for you? Well, I was I was a nerd. Um, I, you know, I did I did, you know, my homework and I would often get my homework done pretty quick and, and easy. And then I'd go in the next day and let everybody copy off of me. I never had any problem with that. I, I didn't really think of the ethics of it. I, I really liked everybody. Uh, I didn't really have like enemies or anything like that. I, I got along with everybody uh, very well, uh, mostly because I let them copy my homework. So they were fond of me. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I, I enjoyed school. I didn't really focus. I was a, I was an A and B student until 10th grade. Um, and that's when I started dating this girl uh, named Josephine. Um, and, uh, she was a straight A student. In fact, she was the valedictorian of our class. Um, so, you know, I, I guess it's a little bit of male ego and male pride. I can't let my girl get better grades than me. So I, uh, I really started to focus there and I, and I, you know, I wouldn't let her get a better grade than me. So <laughs> I, I started getting straight A's at that point. Um, so again, it was probably out of ego and, and some sort of male thing. Uh, so probably for the wrong reasons, but the right thing. I learned a lot. Um, anyway, I mentioned her name, Josephine, because she is my wife. We married uh, 11 years after we started dating. Um, so, so yep, and we're still together, and she still wow. gets uh, – she's still – she's a valedictorian. That's <laughs> she awesome. Still is, yeah. Well, it, so, so- it sounds like you, you, similar to me, you married up. Yes, yes, I sure did. I sure did. That's awesome. Well, so you decide, I guess, to go to Michigan. And, and for those who don't realize, I mean, if you're not familiar with the area, Michigan is probably one of the best public schools in the country. Like, it's, it's an excellent school. So a two-part question, I guess. Number one is, why did you decide to go to Michigan? And two, you know, why did you pick the major you picked when you were there? So uh, I went to the University of Michigan um, because it was a good school. It wasn't too far away. It was only about an hour from our house. And for in-state tuition, it was relatively affordable. Um, my parents paid uh, for my schooling, and uh, I'm very thankful that they did. It cost them a lot of money. You know, they had to scrape a lot together. But it, it was close, and it was affordable. Um, and it was a good school. And I, I chose uh, – my when I was a kid, another thing I hadn't told you about, I loved – flight. I had never flown. I didn't fly until I was maybe 15 or 16 years old, but I loved making things that flew. I paper airplanes. I would make all kinds of paper airplanes, intricate, complex. I just loved paper airplanes. Um, I was part of science Olympiad, uh, when I was in high school and, uh, I was the kite maker. It was actually me and my, my, girlfriend at the time, Joe, we would make kites, these elaborate kites, and there'd be kite competitions. You know, can you steer your kite and make circles and squares and stuff in the sky? So I was all about aviation. Then I went to uh, University of Michigan, and I my plan was to be an aeronautical or aerospace engineer. 
And I remember I met with my counselor. This was sophomore year. I went into generic engineering. That was freshman year. Sophomore year, I had to decide what my engineering major was going to be. And of course, I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. This was in 1988-89. And Barb Toma, she was my counselor, she, amazing lady. Oh, my gosh. She, she was really a great advisor. She said to me, don't do this. Don't go into aerospace. And I'm like, well, why not? She said, the Cold War just ended. And that industry is going to collapse. There's a lot of aerospace engineers out there, far more than we will need because we're not going to be building as many rockets and stuff. So she said, you should go into electrical engineering with a computer focus. Hey, that seemed good to me. So that's why I did that. And frankly, there were a lot, a lot of jobs um, in that. So it was Barb Toma who steered me the right way. I... Uh, I don't know whatever happened to Barb, uh, but I'm so thankful for her influence on my life. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's great. Well, so around this time, I, I guess at some point you're kind of entering the workforce. So, so what, you know, you have this really amazing, innovative, really cool job. Now, I assume your first job that you ever had was maybe not as glamorous. Right. My first job was in high school. I started working at age 15. Um, I was an engraver, uh, at a jewelry store. Um, so it was, a, it was a machine engraver, a new Hermes is the, the name of the machine. And I'd sit at that machine and it had like a diamond tip and I would trace out letters uh, that were etched in, um, in brass and I would just kind of trace it. And it, there was a lot of measurement, a lot of uh, design, aesthetics. How can you lay this out? So I, I, I'm very much, I love fonts because I'd have all these different fonts I could choose from. I love skewing fonts in different ways, and I'd, I'd trick this machine out to make it do things that it wasn't supposed to do. That was my first job, and, and I love that. I love the physicality of it, too. I would, I would take watches or necklaces or, like, mugs and, and engrave on them, yeah. etch things. So that, that was my first job. Was there, um, ever, was there ever any, do you remember, like, anything zany that everyone, anyone had you ride into it? Was there anything that sticks out? Um, no, you know, it was pretty standard stuff. Uh, you know, I remember we used to get really busy around Christmas. I mean, I was, you know, a high school kid and I'm working like 14 hour days. Um, and one of the things it was me and a jeweler, we were in this little room together. Um, uh, the jeweler was Jim Kinney, a dear friend of mine for, for many, many, many years. He was far older than I was. Uh, I think he was 36 at the time, I was 16, 17. And I remember thinking, man, that man is old, 36. <laughs> uh, but we used to, um, especially at Christmas time, we worked so darn hard. And what we would do is we'd, we'd show up on the weekends, because I had school during the week. But we'd show up on the weekends, usually 6 a.m., with White Castles for breakfast. And for those that don't know, White Castles are a kind of hamburger that's like a slider. They're really greasy. They're probably horrible for you, but they're tasty. And White Castles have an effect on the human body, which is, <laughs> yes, to yeah. make it smell in a variety of ways really bad. So we would bring White Castles in for breakfast, eat them at six. Nobody would bother us the rest of the day so we could put in a 14-hour day without interruption. He working on the jewelry stuff, you know, sizing rings, setting diamonds, that kind of stuff. Me working on the engraving. So I didn't engrave weird stuff, but sometimes to get the job done, we would, um, you know, cause a weird odor in our room. 
Wow. Yeah, I, I would say yeah, if someone's never had White Castle before, my number one recommendation is if you're going to get it on a long trip, make sure you're at least an hour within an hour of your destination is probably the best thing I could say there. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. That's right. It will go through you quicker than you expect. Yes. <laughs> Great. So, okay, so you're, you're doing the college thing. You, you've decided to major in, in engineering with focus on computers. Yep. Where do you go from there? What's what's how do you go from that to actually getting into the computer industry? It was a few steps. So I remember it was my senior year in college. I was going for job interviews and I interviewed with this company and that company. And there was a company called Bellcore, Bell Communications Research. And there was, uh, I went to an interview to interview with this company. I didn't really know very much about Bellcore. Um, but Bellcore was founded, it was like a spinoff of Bell Labs because uh, the government broke up, you know, Ma Bell, AT&T back in like 1984. And this was now in 1991. So there were all of these regional Bell operating companies, the local phone companies, you know, uh, Bell Atlantic, uh, Ninex, uh, Bell South, that's from your neck of the woods, right? And um, they needed something that would hold all those local phone companies together. They needed their own kind of research and standards. That's what Bellcore was. It was a spinoff of Bell Labs to do this. So I went into this interview and it was the most bizarre interview I ever had. It was with a man named Ed Gould. And here's how the interview went. Because I had a bunch of interviews with different companies, and none of them were like this. I sat down in front of Ed Gould, and he looked at me, and he said, let me tell you a little bit about yourself. And he started to describe me um, in a remarkably accurate way. Uh, and, and he said, so am I right? I'm like, yeah. And then he continued describing me. Now, I'd never met this man before. He just looked at my transcript and my resume, and he spent a half hour telling me about me. And, and then he got to the end of that and he says, is, is that right? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, great. We'd like to fly out to New Jersey and uh, have you interview more there. I'm like, all right, cool. So they flew me out to Jersey. Uh, this was, I think, my third or fourth flight ever. Um, it was the first one that got delayed in the sky. And I remember going around and around and around for like an hour. Cause I could tell, cause it's the first time I ever saw New York city and I could see the empire state building. So I'm looking out of the plane. Oh, the empire state building. First time you see it is great. When you're circling in the sky for an hour, the 12th time you see it, you're like, am I ever going to land? <laughs> Not anyway, quite the same effect, yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. We landed. Uh, I went on a job interview with them, and they offered me a job. But it was so cool. I'm so thankful. The job that they gave me was this. They said, we want to pay you to go to graduate school, and we're going to pay for your graduate school. And you can go to any school you want. And if you go, whatever school you go to, we'll give you um, $24,000 a year and pay for your school. Or if you go to Carnegie Mellon, where we've set up this special program, we will pay you $31,000 and pay for your school. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm not a mathematician, but 31000 is bigger than 24000 So I'll take it. Yeah. So in 1992, Belcor, uh, see, Belcor, it was kind of an unusual thing because all the baby bells were monopolies, the, the local phone company it was a monopoly and they were required by regulation. Each of the seven baby bells had to pay about $140 million a year, uh, to Belcor. And if you take 140 million, you multiply it by seven, you get a billion dollars. So Belcor had a billion dollars every year guaranteed because it was just in the regulations and it was built on people paying their phone bills. So, um, 
and it was it was really an amazing opportunity. Now, here's the 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 the, the strings attached. You have to get your master's degree in 14 months. So you're gonna have to work as hard as you ever have worked in 14 months, and we'll give you $31,000 a year and pay for the master's degree. You just have to get it in 14 months. And this is at Carnegie Mellon, which is not an easy school. It's at Carnegie Mellon, exactly. So it was intense. It was hard. I've never worked harder in my life. I loved it. And we lived like kings. There were actually like 45 people in the same program that I was in. Belcor sent us all there to learn. Uh, again, Belcor was a monopoly's monopoly, and that's why it had the money to do this. Um, and it sent us through this, and and we learned and had fun. And and anyway, there I learned how the phone networks worked. I I I was a programmer before this. Back in high school, I was writing basic programs. I also wrote some programs for my VIC twenty and then my Commodore sixty four. Uh, and even starting to get into the machine language of VIC twenty and Commodore sixty four. But I learned how to code in a much deeper level at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, it was all C at the time. Java didn't even exist yet. Um, and Python? Nope, not yet. Uh, so, but anyway, I learned a bunch there. And then, oh, the other thing that came with this Belcor thing is when you finish, you have a job. Um, and they didn't require you to work at Belcor for any specific period of time. But I thought from a moral perspective... They paid for my education. They paid me while I was getting my education a, a salary. I owe these people at least five years. No matter what happens, I should work there five years and give them my best. So when I got out of college, when I got out of graduate school, I worked at Belcor for about five and a half years to put in my time there. And there I learned professionalism. You know, I was on my first conference call uh, at Belcor. I was the guy... I wore a um, I wore a tie every day for the first ninety days of work because I thought that's what professionals did. None of my colleagues wore a tie, and this didn't seem to occur to me that I should try to dress like they did. I thought I should wear a tie because I'm a professional now. Um, I remember my first conference call, Chris. Oh my gosh, we were we were working on a SS7 protocol, Signaling System Seven. It's it's the way that phone switches communicate with each other, and um, we were actually putting SS7 on top of TCP or UDP and IP. That's what we're here to talk about on this call. And uh, th there's all these people that work in the phone company and they're all brilliant and I'm just an idiot kid right out of college. And I remember there was eight or 10 of us on the call and I was kind of, I was kind of scared because I was talking to a bunch of people that I couldn't see. This I'd never done this before. So I'm on this conference call and um, they're talking, the decision has to be made. We're going to treat SS7 as layer seven. We're going to treat IP as layer three. And the big question is what layer four protocol best matches our use case? Would it be TCP or UDP? And wow. we're debating back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I mentioned, here's my contribution to this call. I mentioned on the call, I said, UDP, isn't it funny how that stands for the unreliable damn protocol. Because you see, I had written that in my notes. I had a professor that said that back in grad school. UDP, he wrote it on the board. UDP equals unreliable damn protocol. And uh, of course, it doesn't stand for that. It stands for user datagram protocol. But I wrote in my notes, unreliable damn protocol. That's what I remembered. And I thought I would be funny on this conference call at Belcor. So I said, hey, UDP, it's unreliable damn protocol. And there was silence, <laughs> absolute silence. And somebody else, I don't know who it was, somebody on the conference call said, who let him in here? I was devastated. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I kind of cut my teeth learning how to be a professional. I had an amazing mentor 
at Belcor. His name was Mike Cahill. And he really showed me the ropes. He showed me the importance of personal brand, the importance of saying what you mean, of working with passion, of having fun while you work. I learned all of that from Mike Cahill. Um, well, it sounds like too that that you know starting out, and, and this is probably a good lesson. Like even even Ed Scotus was at one time at one job that guy who wore who who wore the tie and who said the thing in the conference call. Everyone is that guy at some point. I, I sometimes wonder if I still am that guy. Um, <laughs> I, I I got a really wonderful tweet. This was a couple years ago where somebody tweeted to me, and I, I don't want to say I'm bragging or anything. It's actually the opposite of all that. Somebody tweeted to me saying, "Hey Ed, what do you do when you walk into the room?" And you're not the smartest guy in the room. And I responded back to him sincerely. I said, look, when I walk into the room, I always assume I'm the stupidest guy in the room and everything works out great. Um, seriously, you know, I mean, you don't have to put on intellectual airs. In fact, quite the opposite. Strip down the intellectual air and, um, you know, be real and just, you know, treat people with dignity and respect. That's another thing I see sometimes in this industry People who are really, really, really smart, some of them will discount people who they think aren't as smart as them or they'll ignore what they say. I often find that somebody who might not be very skilled, somebody who might not be very smart actually will ask questions that rock my world and I, and give me ideas. So I, I think people are really missing out on some incredible insights by talking to people who have a lot less experience and maybe even a lot less intellectual capacity than themselves. You can get so much from folks who are new and have a fresh set of eyes or a different cognitive ability than you have. Well, and That's those, so good. Those people come into something that maybe you've been thinking about for 10 years, but they come into it without all the assumptions that maybe Dude, you're you, right. you have. And without those assumptions, I mean, it gives them an ability to see things in a different perspective and challenge it differently. And, and you're right that, you know, in, in information security and maybe even in broader IT, it seems like there's there's almost kind of this underlying knowledge-based economy where there are folks who perceive a higher self-worth because they've been doing it longer, they have more expertise, and that, you know, that's not a sustainable thing and honestly not a welcoming thing to people who are newer in the field. Absolutely. And uh, we need to welcome those people because there's just not enough people that uh, available today that can do this work and encourage people. Um, and frankly, it, it not only benefits the people that you're encouraging, but it benefits you. You'll get you'll you'll get more insights. You'll see new things. Um, and, you know, there's certain conferences that lend themselves to this kind of thing. Uh, this is I think this is in the DNA of DerbyCon um, that they really want to get new people in the industry, thinking new ideas, sharing new ideas. ShmooCon is also very much organized around that, getting new people presenting and talking about things in ways that aren't often talked about at other venues. Uh, I, I love DerbyCon. I love ShmooCon. Um, you know, they're great, great things. I want to pause just a moment and tell you about one of our sponsors. And I really love it when I can talk about sponsors uh, that are products I actually use. And that product in this case is CloudShark. The best way I can describe CloudShark is like Wireshark in your browser. It allows you to upload packet capture files, tag them, and perform basic analysis on them. I actually use CloudShark quite heavily when writing Practical Packet Analysis 3 and developing the online course of the same name. It allowed me to tag the packet captures in ways that made sense to me. Uh, so I could tag them whether they were troubleshooting scenarios or security scenarios, even tag them based upon the book chapter or the protocols contained within them. It saved me a ton of time. 
It provides a lot of great analysis features too. It'll allow you to search through packet captures using a standard search language or filters that you're used to from other tools. Uh, it also allows you to scan for security threats. This is a pretty new feature and I had a chance to play with it recently and it's really neat for providing investigative context as you're going through a PCAP. Now, CloudShark is made by the folks at QA Cafe who are good friends of mine and you can learn more about it by going to cloudshark.org. If you decide to take a serious look at it, make sure you tell them that you heard about it from me on the Source Code Podcast. Now, back to Ed. Well, you mentioned newer people in our industry, and probably one of the ways you interact with those people the most is probably through your work with SANS. Yes. Uh, and you've been you've been doing SANS for, for what, probably close to 20 years now? Is that right? Uh, in a, two months, it will be 18 years. Wow. That's a, that's so you, you got that just about right. Yeah. Good, good. Well, so tell me a little bit. I know we might be skipping a couple of steps here, but, but tell me a little bit about kind of your origin story as it relates to SANS. You know, how did you get into that? And, and was that your first was that your first really sincere teaching type of engagement or, or just talk a little bit about well, how that started for you? Sure, sure. I um, when I was at Belcor. Uh, I took a class on how to give presentations and the, the lady who taught the class was named Mita Greenberg. And, uh, cause they, they thought at Belcor, every Belcor engineer needs to know how to speak publicly. So they, they paid for us to go to this class. And I learned from Mita Greenberg, different ways to modulate your voice, different ways to, to talk faster sometimes, and sometimes to talk slower, to emphasize things. I learned so much from this woman. Uh, she was very, very cool. Um, so that was it at Belcor. And then I started to do presentations. We do brown bag lunches. This was really cool. Um, so I'd have these amazing Belcor engineers. Here is a circumstance where I was the dumbest guy in the room, guaranteed. And we'd have to, like, every six months, you'd have to stand up in front of this group of people. They'd all bring in their brown bag lunches, and you'd have to present to these geniuses who built and maintained the phone network about something. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I ultimately moved into the security group at Belcor. My original job at Belcor was working on operator services, what city please, and then pay phones. And I looked at, you know, pay phone industry and I'm like, this is not going to last. This is 94, 95. I knew pay phones were not going to last. So, cause of cell phones coming up. So I transitioned into the security team, did these brown bag lunches, which kind of helped me to, to, you know, teach a little bit and present better and have really hard questions. I remember there was a guy at Belcor. His name was Rich Graveman. He was a genius. He was my office mate, but he asked really hard questions. He was the chief, crypt, chief cryptographer at Belcor. Pretty intense guy. And I remember one time he told me he was at one of these brown bag lunches. Guy got up in front of the room and said, I want to talk to you about TCP. And the guy said, that's this is not Rich Graveman. Rich Graveman's in the audience. But the guy in front of the room said, I want to talk about TCP. That's the transport control pro- protocol. Rich Graveman told me he folded his book in half, you know, folded it up and got up and walked out of the room because that guy didn't know it was the transmission control protocol. He knew it was the transport control protocol. He says, that guy doesn't even know what his acronym that he's presenting on stands for. I'm not going to listen to anything he has to say. And I'm thinking, I really have to up my game. I got to make sure every time I say an acronym, I expand it properly. The transmission control protocol, never call that the transport control. And of course, my earlier experience with the unreliable damn protocol. Um, so so I learned from those brown bag lunches, you got to bring your A game every time. You really got, and you got to think about your audience and how they're, what buttons they have. And if you say something wrong or it's not really clear to understand, that's bad. Uh, so I did that for several years. I, um, I left Belcor and uh, started to, uh, to work for other companies that did information security consulting. Um, and I started 
to go and present at a couple of events. And I love presenting at these events. This is pre-SANS. This was in 97, 98. Um, and, you know, I, I, I love to get the questions from the audience. Cause, and I say this in my class even today. I know kind of what I'm going to say. I don't know what you're going to ask or what you're going to say. And that's what gets me most interested. So I love really good questions, really in-depth questions. Um, and then, and that's, I mean, that's performance art right there. If you give me a question that I never thought of before, I want to give you a well-thought answer in real time. And, and I don't want to look like I'm dancing. I want to actually meaningfully engage with your question. I love doing that. It's hard, but it's fun work. So anyway, I kind of learned that a little bit. And then I got a, I got a call in 1999 from my good friend, Gene Schultz. I don't know if you know Gene, Chris. Did you ever get a chance to meet Gene? I don't think so, no. Gene was an amazing man. He's an information security practitioner for 20-some years before me. Uh, he was a professor for a while at uh, University of California in Berkeley. Uh, he also uh, taught at Purdue for a while with Gene Spafford. Um, Gene Schultz was an incredible man. Um, anyway, Gene called me, and I learned a lot from Gene. Um, what I would often find with Gene is Gene would argue with me on purpose about technical things, but you know, we'd get to a certain point in the argument where I realized Gene was actually arguing in bad faith, but with good reason. What I mean by bad faith is he would be arguing something he didn't agree with. I had actually convinced him, but he would continue working on this argument because it made me better. So he would argue you know, sort of a devil's advocate. He would argue contrary to what he believed because he wanted to make his friend Ed better understand why I believed what I believed. So that's sort of my relationship with Gene. Gene called me and said, hey, he's got this friend named Alan Paller. And Alan Paller runs the Sands Institute. He said, have you ever heard of Sands? Oh yeah, I get their stuff in the mail. I, I, yeah. He said, I talked to Alan about having you present there. Are you interested? And I said, oh yeah, I'd love to. So it was uh, May of 1999, Baltimore Inner Harbor, um, I had the opportunity to do a two hour evening presentation. And I remember I was in the room. There's 300 people in the room. It's standing room only. I'm going to present on hacker tools. And, um, uh, Alan Paller was there. Stephen Northcutt was there. And, and so was, so was Gene Schultz. So I'm standing up in front of the room and I'm presenting my heart out. I'm, I love this SANS thing. It's such a great thing. These people care so much about information security and helping the industry. And I'm presenting, presenting, presenting. And then somebody in the front row looks at me, I look at him, and he points to my shoes, and he says, your shoe's untied. And I look down, and I'm like, crap, what, what do I do? I mean, I'm in front of 300 people. If I stop the whole presentation, bend down, tie my shoes, that's bad. So this is all happening at hyperspeed reality. So I, what I decided to do is I said, I, with all apologies to the front row and the row behind them, it appears that my shoe has become untied rather than tying it right now. I'm just going to kick it off and continue the presentation in my socks. Wow. And I was stunned because everybody clapped when I said that they all clapped and I did the rest of the presentation uh, in my socks. It, it seemed to go pretty well. Uh, so Stephen Northcutt came up to me afterwards and he said, we'd like to have you teach. So in October of 99, they had me uh, teach a full day at Sands, New Orleans. It was in October of that year. And that went pretty well. So then one day of materials grew into two days of materials, which grew into four, which grew into five, which grew into six days of materials and ultimately became the SANS 504 course. Yeah. So, so that's, that's sort of, I mean, the, the absolute true origin story of how 504 came to be and um, my role with it. I remember, here's a, here's a fun story. I was, um, 
I was putting together the different piece parts that would be 504. I mean, this was really important. And uh, I, I had them on my laptop, on my desk, in the first house that I had ever bought with my wife. We didn't have any kids. Actually, no, we did. We had, a, we had Jessica. She was, she was two years old, maybe three. And I've got the, my laptop with all of the SANS material that I'm stitching together into the course that will become 504. And my wife, you know, I got up to go eat dinner or something. I don't know. I got up from the desk. And my wife watered a plant on the desk. And she overwatered it so that the water spilled out of the plant. I walked back into the room, and there's a puddle under my laptop. I have no backups. We didn't have backups in those days. There's a puddle under my laptop. And this is like all of the material that will become 504. And I, I almost fell over dead. I, 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 you know, I felt faint. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's going to destroy everything. So I walked over to the computer. I, pl- I plugged in a, they call them floppy disks. Most of your audience probably doesn't I'm kidding. They don't know what a floppy disk is. I plugged it and I started backing up all this material to floppy disk on this computer that was still running, but with a puddle of water around it. Um, and and that made a backup of the, the material that became 504. But 504 almost died because of watering a plant. Wow. Well, I, I think if there were a theme to our conversation this, thus far, it's things almost ending up in disaster from, from like being on the river to presenting in socks to, to the conference call to this. That, that seems to be the theme, which is a pretty hilarious theme. So Interesting. I, you know, I didn't even think of that. I, I tell you, it's I've been so fortunate. I've been so lucky. I've had the greatest bosses in the world. I hear you know friends that have like horrible bosses. I had such great bosses that I learned so much from. I had a boss when I was at Belker. Her name was Miriam Hernandez Cakel. I learned from her how to be a boss, how to manage people. In, in, and the whole idea of that is the, the boss doesn't lord it over you. The boss is no better than you. The boss in actually a lot of ways is your servant. Does the boss realize that? And, and how does the boss serve you? The boss's job is to do what the boss needs to do so you can get more done. This is yeah. what I learned from Miriam. And – you know, if there's a conference call that has to be taken, it's a bunch of politics. The boss should take that call and let you work on what you got to work on. Uh, so that's one of the jobs of the boss. Another job that the boss has is to make sure that you get credit for all the great work that you do and that you get paid appropriately for all the great work that you do and that there's internal marketing and external marketing to help you build your name in the industry. There's all these things that a boss should do. I learned that from my various bosses, but especially Miriam. Um, so, yeah, I've been... Yes, there have been near disasters, but I've been so fortunate. I never want to lose sight of that, ever. That's that's wonderful. Well, you know, speaking of bosses, I I think is 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 a funny segue, and I think I might have told you this story before. But for the benefit of the listeners, you know, I, uh, you know, we we kind of know each other to some degree because I worked for Guardians for a while. But but you weren't at Guardians when I was there. But of course, mutual friends, you were involved with that company and so on. You know, when I. Hired on to in Guardians, you know, it, it was it was a dream come true to me. It was a fantastic experience while I was there, and I remember I interviewed with with Mike and Jay and Tom Liston and all these guys who I'd, I'd read about and taken classes from, and fantastic group of guys. And I remember, you know, you were not on the interview, and I was thinking, okay, you know, at the time I thought you were still with the company, and yeah. so I was thinking, I was like, well, you know, Ed's doing stuff, he's teaching for stands, whatever, and I'm I'm the new guy amongst all these giants, and I'm in the the IRC room, and I'm in there for about a week, and I'm like. Hey guys, it's weird. I've not seen Ed here. Like, where's Ed? What's what's he up to? And they're like, 
well, well, Ed's, you know, doing the counter hack thing now. I was like, what R- really? And, and I just had no idea. And, and that was fine. I just, I just never thought to ask. And, and you weren't there at the time you were doing counter. I just, I just think that's a funny story. It uh, is. Yeah. Uh, and I still, I still hear from people who will email me, um, saying, Hey, how are things going at in guardians? And I'll respond back saying, from what I hear, they're going great. I, I'm happy to forward your email to Mike or Jay. Um, and maybe maybe I should tell a little bit about that here so people have the context. Um, you know, we founded in Guardians uh, back in 2002, 2003, 2004. And uh, it was originally six founders of the company. And uh, it was, I think originally it was Mike Poor's idea. Mike said, hey, we can, we can get together and do more and better work than we could do separately. And, uh, cause at the time I was a sort of a freelance guy. Um, I had realized that I could make more money on my own doing individual, individual pen testing, uh, than, than I could working for somebody else. So I just struck out on my own and I was doing a pen test of the Pentagon. I mean, this is kind of cool. <laughs> I'm just this guy. Uh, and a new bid came out to do an even better pe- pen test for the Pentagon. And it was like a hundred thousand bucks. I'm like, dude, I want to win that. So I was talking to my customer there and they said, we can't give that to you. I'm like, well, why not? Because you're one guy. I mean, if you die and the project's half done, I mean, we got nothing. We can't do that. So Mike approached me saying, I want you to be part of this company we're going to build. Um, and at the time I was losing a bid that I really wanted to win because I was just a guy. Also healthcare prices were going through the roof because I was insuring myself and my family by myself. I, I wanted to be a part of a group plan. I look back though in healthcare is much more expensive now than it ever was then. But um, so we could get lower cost healthcare, we could get better projects, bigger projects, work with people that I think the world of, like Jay Beal and Jimmy Alderson and Bob Hillary and, and Mike Poor and just these these fantastic, fantastic guys. So so we made the company. And I worked uh, there uh, very hard, loved working with those guys. Uh, I We worked so hard to create a culture within the company that was fun and learning and open uh, culture was a big point of that. And then in 2011, I wanted to go in a different direction. Uh, I still love those guys. Um, and I love the pen tests that they were doing, but I wanted to make a company that focused more on creating these training simulations, net wars. I mean, cyber city wasn't even an idea at the time, but something like net wars where we could make capture the flag games that would scale up to hundreds or thousands of people. I wanted to do that. And it just wasn't in the, the, the mix or the bailiwick of in guardians to do that. So it was very amicable. I said, guys, I, I love you guys. I'm going to send you pen test work. New projects come in that I don't want to do. I'm going to send them to you. Um, and it was very, very friendly. I still support those guys. I, um, at last year's DerbyCon, they invited me to, um, to the meeting. They had an all hands meeting there and they invited me there so we could just talk about pen testing and the trends that I'm seeing. And there's all these new faces there like, uh, Tyler and, and, and just, I mean, just great, great people. So, so I still support them. I think they're one of the best places you can go to get a pen test. Um, well, and the thing about guardians too, not, not to interrupt, but, but they, and I talked about, you know, there's an interview with, with Mike I, I, I've done, and, and it'll come out later, too. There's a family, there's a sense of a family there. And, and I know, like, every place you ever work will say, yeah, we're a family. And that's never been true for anywhere I've really worked other than in Guardians. And so 
once you're family, you're always family. And, and as yeah. you know, I no longer work there, but I still feel like those guys are my family. And like, we call each other all the time and just talk about different things. And, you know, a lot of people, especially, you know, they'll know different people from in guardians or, or, or someone from through sands. And they think they're these technical giants and even better people than they are technicians. Right. Like, and that, that that's, that's something that I don't think everybody realizes that sense of family. And, and it's definitely a, a very special thing. I agree with you. And, you know, I, I host these big um, dinner parties every year at DEF CON. And uh, at last year's DEF CON, I invited all of the InGuardians team and they all came. And, and there were a bunch of other friends there too. And all of CounterHack was there. So it was all of CounterHack. All, remember, CounterHack was created to do the network stuff and such. And then all of InGuardians was there, including Jay and Jimmy and such. Mike wasn't able to make it, Mike Poor, but all the other guys were there. Larry Pesci, who was amazing, he was there. Um, and and we just dined together at Fogodicho as one does, and what great fun it was! Wow, oh, yeah. So yeah, family, family. That's a big part of that culture, family. And I, I try to do the same thing at Counterhack to make us one big family. I mean, Counterhack's up to ten people now. Wow. Um. Yep. And we, we spend most of our time doing these simulations. We also do pen testing, but the pen testing we do is very focused. Um. We love to do pen tests where you have um. Network pen testing, touch embedded stuff, which touches uh, wireless, often custom wireless protocols, or at least very specialized profiles of Zigbee. There's web app. There's mobile. It's controlled via tablet, this and that. Um, there's cloud. So a lot of Internet of Thingsy things or very complex, multi-varied infrastructures. That's what me and my guys pen test. And the reason we do the pen testing, first of all, it's because we like it. But secondly, it's what gives us the ideas that we build into NetWars, Holiday Hack Challenge, uh, and all uh, CyberCity. If, if we were to just do The Sims, we would grow stale. But because we do pen testing, and we also do a lot of expert witness work for various cases. Um, that's where we keep ourselves smart on what's important in the industry so that we can build actually meaningful challenges in our simulations. Uh, that said, I get so much more pen test work than I can do uh, and my team can do. I send it to InGuardians. I send it to Black Hills, which is John Strand's company. Yeah. And uh, they both of those companies do such great work um, that, that I love sending yeah. uh, potential customers there. Uh, absolutely. That's great. Well, yeah. you know, one thing I've noticed about you, and I think you're probably one of the better storytellers I've ever met. And from, from my perspective, I, I mean, I'm also an educator to a degree, and, and I think the best way to relate to students is to be able to tell a story where they kind of see things through your eyes, and, and it's almost like a show me, don't just tell me type thing. Yes. Um, is that something you sought out to do over your career is to become a good storyteller, or is that something absolutely. that just kind of happened? No, absolutely. I, it's been very purposeful. Um by initial – I love to read. I love to read stories. That's very good. Um, and then I I listen to a lot of podcasts and, like, and try to see how the podcast constructs stories. Um, I have, as one of my best friends in the whole universe, Mike Poor. Mike Poor is a fantastic t storyteller. And and it's, it's not obvious how you tell a good story. Um, you want to put little information out there up front that kind of gets exciting but a little mysterious. You can't put it all out there up front. you got to hold things back. There's a cadence to your voice that you want to have. There's a bunch of things you want to do. And I started learning this kind of stuff from Mike Poor. Then I listened to various podcasts. And one of the best podcasts that you can listen to to learn about storytelling is actually Radiolab. Have you ever listened to Radiolab, Chris? 
I have not, but I certainly will now at your you recommendation. Should. Yeah. It's, it's not about storytelling. It, 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 it's, in fact, it's funded by the National Science Foundation and NPR and all this kind of stuff. But it's, it's, it's like science stories, geeky stories and stuff like that. But they're told masterfully. So, so anyway, I was I, I listening to how are they constructing their stories? What are they putting out there? How do they keep you moving along? So, so I you know, started just reading and talking with Mike about how stories work and then started listening to this one of the world's best podcasts. There is Radio Lab. Please note, I make no money by suggesting you listen to Radio Lab. <laughs> anyway, and then continuing. And then I tell you, RSA, the RSA conference I presented there for, I don't know, 15 years or so, they started doing a thing six years ago, something like that, where they would take s- some of the speakers from RSA and they sent us to storytelling classes. It was a one-day class. Uh, they sent us to one. It was at uh, Stanford University. And um, it was done by a couple professors there. Uh, they have a company called Stand and Deliver. And what these professors normally do is they go around the world and they coach CEOs in how to talk to the board and how to talk to large groups of investors. So, you know, if you have an investor conference or something like that. So they tell CEOs, and they get a, they a lot of money to do this, to tell CEOs how to tell stories. So I took a class from them. It was a one-day class. And there were a bunch of other wonderful people in the class. Josh Corman was in the class. Katie Mazuris was in the class. Um, just just a, a lot of uh, great people. Chris Hoff was in the class. Um, so that was one year. And then the next year, they sent us to another – it was up in uh, Massachusetts – uh, they sent us to take storytelling lessons from The Moth. Uh, the Moth is another podcast um, where they they do storytelling. And it's just – it's artistic, creative stories. And we learned The Moth storytelling uh, characteristics. Then the next year, they sent us back to Stanford. And we talked to the Stand and Deliver guys. And there's a whole bunch of tips that they gave us in how to tell a good story. You want me to share a little bit of that? Yeah, Absolutely. Okay. First thing is you can throw some questions in when you're telling a story, just like I did there, because now you're directly engaging on, you you set it up and of course they're going to say yes, right? Hey, I've got this thing that I want to share with you. Do you want to hear it? Right. And that's boom, they're in. The other thing that they said is try to incorporate, I mean, they gave us hundreds of things. I'm going to give you some of the, the most salient ones. Try to incorporate characters in your story. Characters. Now, you might be the only character. That's fine, but you're a character. You're moving around. You're doing this. You're you're the eyes and ears of the audience as you're the character. But if you can introduce other characters, like you remember throughout this podcast, I was talking about my mentor, Mike Cahill. He's a guy. He's not just, oh, this mentor, because then he's abstract, but he's a guy named Mike or Miriam hernandez Cahill. Oh, there's a lady. That was Ed's boss. That makes it more real. You care more when you give a name to these people and, 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 and describe them there. Another thing that they said, which I thought was really cool incorporate sensory things into your storytelling. Um, smell is wonderful. Oh, smell has such an impact on your emotions. So you can say, you know, we're walking down. I remember it smells like pine or there was juniper in the air or something like that. And people are like, oh, that's interesting. Also sound imagery. So you do things like and you're clapping your hands and this and that. People resonate with things beyond just the sight sight uh, uh, sense, right? So smell, if you can incorporate that into your story, sound. Um, The other thing, numbers. For whatever reason, some people, when they hear numbers, they get interested in a story. You know, there were were eight of us. There were six founders of InGuardians. You just throw in numbers into your story, and it's not everybody. It's about 20% of your audience. When they hear numbers, it pushes buttons in their brain to kind of get 
interested. We don't know why, but it just does. Um, so it's a bunch of that kind of stuff. There's also, they, they taught us about how to stand in front of an audience, about how to kind of dig deep into yourself, uh, push emotional buttons, all this kind of stuff. Um, anyway, so it has been very deliberate. I think one of the biggest things I think about in storytelling is the order of flow. Cause you've got to have some interesting stuff up front or else nobody's going to listen to you. But if you give it to them all up front, they won't listen for very long. You got to have a payoff that comes later. There needs to be some suspense. There needs to be some, Hey, I, I really want to hear where he's going with this thing. Um, anyway, so those are, that's a grab bag off the top of my head of tips for effective storytelling. And I'm still learning guys. I am not holding myself up as some expert storyteller. I am a, a student of fine storytellers and I'm still learning. And, and it's also fun to do. Oh, that's the biggest thing of all. You have to be interested in your own darn story. If you're not, and you don't appear to be, forget about it. There's no way your audience is going to be interested in it. So you have to speak with the enthusiasm for your own story, um, or else you just just give it up, right? Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, those those are a grab bag of tips. I'm sorry they seemed a little bit scatterbrained, but they're just off the top of my head. No, that's great. And, and you said some of those came from that stand and deliver class was the name of that? Yep, that's right. That's the name of the company okay, that okay. hosts these classes. Um, yeah, the the guys behind the, that company are pretty fantastic. They're they're professors at Stanford University. Wonderful. Wonderful. So one of the, uh, I guess, really one of the last questions I'll ask before we, we kind of get you out of here, and this is something I ask to everybody: What? So you have a new person coming into this field, whether they're young and they're they're maybe coming out of high school, they're they're coming out of college, or maybe even they're older and they're thinking about changing careers, getting into information security. Mm-hmm. What do you? What's your general advice to someone like that? I'm very excited about people like that because there's so many opportunities. It's really really good. I advise that person. Single biggest thing to do is hands on keyboard. We have a lot of people in this industry that have policy and procedure knowledge, and we need some of them. I mean, we do. I'm not discounting the importance of that. You got to have good policies and procedures. That's your foundstone. And oh, I shouldn't have said foundstone, but that's your that's your base building block, right? Um, but but we need more people that have really good hands on technical skills. So if you're new in this industry, I urge you to build technical skills. Build yourself a lab. Your lab can be as simple as a single laptop with a couple of virtual machines on it and just start exploring, start messing around with the command line. Um, we wrote a blog, uh, it was, uh, Tim Medine, Hal Pomerantz and I for several years called command line Kung Fu. Um, you could Google search for command line Kung Fu blog and read our blog articles where we're teaching you different things at the command line. Please note, I make no money on command line Kung Fu zero. We, we did it just to help people. Um, or start asking yourself questions about how things work. Do Google searches to figure out what's really happening, or Bing if you prefer. <laughs> Do those searches, and then come back down to the command line and type things at the command line. So that's that's one bit of advice. Try to get yourself hands-on keyboard time and schedule it. You know, say to yourself every Saturday, I'm gonna spend four hours at the command line and just trying to learn stuff. Schedule it and don't miss it. Maybe you can do more than four hours a week. Maybe you can do two hours a day. Awesome. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Never miss it. Um, so that's my first bit of advice. Get yourself command line stuff. Build yourself a small lab. Second bit of advice, get out into the community. Um, go to some of the hacker conferences. We mentioned earlier uh, DerbyCon, ShmooCon, DEFCON, right? I mean, DEFCON is a huge one. Um, 
and meet people, talk with people, make it more interesting. And then there's the phenomenon of B-sides. What an incredible thing that the, the B-sides group has created. There's all these different events all around the world. There's probably one not too far from most of your listeners. They should go pack up for a day. They're, they're low cost. They're easy enough to get to for most of your listeners. I imagine, Chris, you have listeners all over the world. Um, but B-sides is all over the world. Go there, meet friends, talk with them, listen to the talks, listen to the edges of the talks. Um, this is something I've been doing at DEF CON for years. You know, I'll go see a talk and, you know, there's amazing speakers there, folks like Dan Kaminsky or Deviant, right? And, and you listen to what they're saying and that's great. And you learn from that, but you also listen to where they say, Hey, here's where I've pushed this idea or pushed the envelope here. And you listen to where they end. And cause those are really neat questions. Like, well, what comes next? What goes after that? Uh, sometimes I'll go up to those kind of folks after their talk, say, that was beautiful. I love this or that. You got to have a meaningful conversation with them, but then ask them about those edges. If I wanted to explore that a little more, how would I do it? Um, so, so first bit of advice, hands on keyboard, second bit of advice, um, go to events and, and socialize, network, have fun with people. And, and then the final thing is really have fun. If you want to thrive in this industry for long periods of time, you have to enjoy it. Um, I do believe, and maybe this is just me talking to myself, but I think you can make yourself enjoy things. <laughs> now, sometimes you have to play little tricks with yourself, like you tell yourself you're enjoying something that you might not really be. But I'm able to, if I can to do that for long enough, convince myself that I'm actually enjoying something. Or make it more enjoyable by introducing more fun. This is one of the, the cornerstones of gamification. So if you're doing InfoSec and it doesn't seem fun to you, play more InfoSec games like Sans Holiday Hack Challenge. We, Chris, a lot of people don't realize this. We keep all of the Sans Holiday Hack Challenges up all year round. So you can play last year's. You could play the year before. You could play the year before. You could play 10 years ago Holiday Hack Challenge. They're all up. Look, I pay a lot of money in hosting these challenges. I make no money from them. But I pay to host them so that people can continue to learn. So if you feel there's not enough fun in your InfoSec life, there's a lot of online InfoSec challenges that you can participate in. And if you want one that is catered to people who are brand new at the industry all the way up to people who are like zero-day exploit creators, we aim really widely with the Sands Holiday Hack Challenge. Just go to HolidayHackChallenge.com. They're all there for you. If you click on previous challenges, you'll see all the ones for the last several years. So, so have fun. That's the thing. Have fun. Otherwise you'll burn out. Jack Daniel, great guy, amazing friend. He's uh, one of the, the founders of B-Sides. He's working on a, a project on information security burnout and identifying what it is that causes people to burn out in this industry. And um, we all work very hard. It is very intense. If you make a single mistake, it could result in a big breach. Bad stuff happens. Um, so how do you, how do you counter that by having fun, by socializing, um, by participating in some of these games and challenges? I urge people to do that. Fantastic advice said, I think that that's valuable to, to both groups, the younger folks and the older folks looking to maybe make a change. That's, that's wonderful. Well, well, listen, this has been fantastic. Before we go, is there anything you have upcoming, be it Sans or, or, or Counterhack that you want to get out there over the, uh, over the radio waves? 
Oh, sure. I, uh, I teach the SANS Security 560 course, which is on network pen testing and ethical hacking. I'm the original author of the 504 course, which is on incident handling and hacker attacks. John Strand has taken over authorship of that, and he's doing fantastic. We've got some events coming up this year that I hope people will come out and see us at SANS. Um, we do this one called Pen Test Austin. Uh, it happens uh, every sort of uh, March to April. We got one coming up in late March where it's all about detailed pen test stuff. And people really love it. We're going to be teaching the 504 class, the 560 class, a whole bunch of other classes. We do three nights of Net Wars there. We do a night of Cyber City there. The the Austin hackers come out and, and they play Net Wars with everybody else. And they're, they're fun to hang out with. I mean, these guys have done incredible things in developing Metasploit and Rapid7 and stuff. Just so, so cool. Um, and then we do another event in the fall. We do this in November. Um, we call it Pentest Hackfest. And Pentest Hackfest is where we throw everything we got in there. We do three nights of Net Wars. We do a night of Cyber City. We do a special evening where we go on a field trip. Last year, we took everybody. Oh, it's a surprise field trip. Last year, we took everybody to Mount Vernon and had a challenge uh, associated with George Washington. The year before, we rented out the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum and had a capture the flag challenge inside uh, Air and Space. Um, so, so this year, we're going to do a similar kind of thing. And that'll be in November. Anyway, if people would take a look at that, I would be most grateful. Wonderful. Well, listen, Ed, I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you sharing your story. It's it's a pretty exciting one, and it's just been great to learn about how you progressed and and the things you've learned, and to share your wisdom uh, along the way. Just just sincerely appreciate it, and, and thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Chris. You're a wonderful host. Uh, the the podcast is really cool. I love. Uh, listening to the, the various people that you have uh, on this podcast and learning from them. So uh, so thank you for the service you provide here. Much Ab- appreciated. Absolutely. Thank you. That was so awesome. Ed's great. He's an awesome storyteller. I feel like I learned not just so much about technology when I talk to him, but just about how to interact and talk with people and teach people things. And as an instructor myself, that's something I find incredibly valuable. So I hope you found as much value. Listen, do me a favor. If you liked what Ed had to say today, if you're listening to the podcast and you've got some value out of it, make sure and take the time to thank him. Tweet at him, at Ed Scotus on Twitter. That's at E-D-S-K-O-U-D-I-S, Ed Scotus on Twitter. Thank him for coming on the podcast. Thank him for his time. And be sure to check out all the stuff he's involved with, whether it's uh, uh, SANS with the courses he teaches, whether it's CounterHack. Anything Ed's involved with is usually pretty awesome. So make sure to check it out and thank him for his time. That's going to do it for this first episode of the Source Code Podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in. You can check out the next episode in a couple of weeks. Uh, I'll announce it on my Twitter account at ChrisSanders88. And, of course, you can subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, all those uh, favorite podcasting outlets. And if you did like this, I appreciate your subscription. That definitely helps us out. Uh, If you have any ideas for upcoming seasons of the podcast, maybe you know someone who would be a really good interview, someone a lot of people would love to hear about, make sure, again, to hit me up on Twitter at ChrisSanders88. Or if you represent an organization that would love having me advertise your business and becoming a sponsor of the podcast, uh, just as we did with CloudShark on this first episode, uh, make sure and reach out to me, chris at chrissanders.org, and we'll get you set up. I appreciate y'all, and we'll talk real soon. As always, it's a beautiful day to catch bad guys. Take care. Take care.